Well, good morning, church. Oh, come on. Good morning, church. If you would rather have blood drained from your body than hear me preach, uh, I don't know what to say to that. So, no. Thank you to all of you who are in the room. It means so much to me. Hey, welcome to our house. If it's your first time here, we really are glad that you're here. You notice that we're still doing a little uh, renovation here and uh, construction and all that is still tracking along. And hopefully within the next couple of weeks, all that will come together. Our hope is, and I think it's going to happen, that by September 9th, which again is Bring a Friend Day, uh, everything will be ready. We'll have the new screen installed, projection installed, and it'll all be up and running. So thank you for bearing with us uh, while we're kind of in this, uh, we call it like camp mode, when we're trying to make things work. And uh, I know the screen is going to be a little bigger than this in the future. So if you're in the back, don't worry. Uh, We'll have more help for you on the way soon. But thank you. Uh, Thank you again. We have so many people here at the building each week working. Some of them uh, are working uh, because it's their job. Some of them are volunteering to come up here and help. And we're so grateful for each and every person that's helping to make our our church, honestly, a a more welcoming place, to make our house a more welcoming place. And that's what we're talking about uh, during this series. If you were here last week, you know, if you weren't, I'll catch up real quick. Uh, we're, we're talking about this idea of what if our church was like a house? Uh, what if this place was, was more than a location? What if it was more than 150 East Beltline? What if, what if this was a home, a place, a house where people felt welcomed and invited in a place like they felt like when they came here, they belonged and they were home? That's, that's who we want to be. Uh, that's the kind of people we want to be. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, at least for me growing up in our house, we had house rules. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about the house rules this week that there are probably, and I know people say this all the time, but bear with me, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's really more, but you know, go with me. Two kinds of people in the world. There are people who are rule keepers, rule followers, you know who you are, and then there are the rest of you who are the rule breakers, right? So if you are a rule follower, someone who likes the rules, who is obedient to the rules, who enjoys having rules to follow, if it drives you crazy when people break the rules, raise your hand if you're one of those people that really do. Yeah, you're, you're a rule follower. Yeah, a lot of you are. Now, if you are the other group, if you think that rules are just really mere suggestions, that rules are meant to be broken, that those rules are good for somebody, but probably they don't apply to you, raise your hand. Yeah, we know who you are. Yeah, exactly. There are rule keepers and there are rule breakers. And for the rule followers, you rule breakers drive us insane. And and for the rule breakers, I think you're probably just happy all the time. It doesn't really matter to you. But there's two kinds of people, the rule followers and the rule breakers. In, In our house growing up, we had house rules. And I don't really remember a lot of them. I'm sure a lot of them were spoken, some were unspoken. But one of the ones I remember, and maybe this is the rule in your house if you have kids, was that when you got home from school, the rule was, every day when you got home from school, you had to do your homework first. And after you did your homework, then you could go play, you could go ride your bike, you could do whatever you wanted to do. But the first thing you had to do when you got home was to do your schoolwork. And that was a great rule until I hit fourth grade. And for whatever reason, my fourth grade teacher, and I won't say her name because she might listen, I don't know, but she may be online today watching the one day, right? She gave us so much homework that literally every day, with the help of my parents, uh, I would come home from school, I would start my homework, and it would be bedtime every night. I mean, I would eat supper while I'm doing, you know, math. And I think it was the word problems. Those just killed me, right? Fourth grade just completely killed me. That was a great rule, except it didn't really work for us because it it, it was so overwhelming. Uh, 
our family, we've got three kids, and Alicia and I, we're always looking for house rules, for things to make life in our house work better. And so I thought, I went looking this week, and I, I thought I would share some of these with you. Maybe, maybe if, if uh, you're in a season where you're looking for new house rules for your house, this might be helpful. So I found these house rules. Number one, if you open it, close it. That would, that would be nice enough. If you turn it on, turn it off. If you sleep on it, make it up. If you wear it, hang it up. If you drop it, pick it up. If you eat it, eat out of it, wash it. And if it howls, feed it. And I'm not sure if that just applies to animals or if that's like children or maybe the husbands. I don't know. But either way, if it howls, feed it. That's the good house rule. Uh, when I found those, I also stumbled across this. And I'm a dad of two daughters, so this, this really touched my heart. Rules for dating my daughter. I thought I would share these as well. Number one, get a job. Number two, understand I don't like you. Number three, I'm everywhere. Number four, you hurt her, I hurt you. I like that one. And the next one, I don't mind going back to jail. It's... <laughs> and the last one, remember, she tells me everything. <laughs> like that, as a dad of two daughters, I found that really helpful. So if you take nothing else home today, you've got that. But I did find one more thing. I found rules for a great marriage. So I thought for all of those who, of you who are married, I'd share these. Number one, rules for a great marriage, the wife is always right. And there's only one other rule. Number two, if the wife is wrong, see rule number one. I thought that was just sage advice as well. You know, the funny thing is, we're really good at coming up with rules, aren't we? We come up with rules for everything. We come up with rules for, for our house, for our family. We come up with rules for the sports we play. There's rules for school. There's rules at your workplace. Uh, there, in, every, in government, in society, in every zone of your life, there are rules. There are these, these things that tell us this is how life is supposed to work in this context in this place. And what's happened, and you know this, is that even in church, we've got really good at coming up with rules. I heard about one church uh, a while back where, and this is fine, it's whatever, but in this church, um, if you came to church there, uh, all the men had to wear a suit coat and a tie. And if you visited this church and you didn't know, like if you just walked in, you know, like some, you know, you know guy like me, um, that was okay. They had a closet, and they would take you over, and they would let you choose a suit coat and a tie so you could enter that room and worship. I don't think I would be very welcome there, but, you know, that was their rule. And you know this, that churches over the years have always been really good at coming up with all kinds of rules. Some of them are spoken. Some of them are unspoken. Some of you remember growing up in a church, if you grew up in a church like this, where every week the rule was, we're going to sing two songs, then have a what? So you know it, a prayer. Uh, that was the rule. That's just what we did. It was one of those unspoken rules, but it happened every single time we gathered. But you also know what happens in churches, at least in a lot of churches, is that sometimes we come up with these rules, some that are spoken, and a lot, honestly, that are unspoken. And over time, they caused more harm than they did good. Some of those rules became legalistic. Some of those rules, honestly, became toxic. And they might have come from a good place initially, but over time, they caused more harm and more pain and more judgment and more confusion. And you probably know someone that used to go to church, but when they experienced that kind of church, well, they said, if, if this is what church is like, if this is what God is like, no thanks. Like, I still believe in God, but I, I, I can't do the church thing. And what happened for a lot of churches is that they became known more 
by what they're against than what they're for. And if someone were to, were to, if you were to ask someone, you know, what is that church about? Well, the list they're going to come up with were all the things that they don't do or you can't do if you're a part of that church. And what's really interesting to me is that the rules that God gave us were never meant to be restrictive. The rules God gave us were never meant to cause harm and surely not to cause shame. They were never meant to cause pain. But what people have even done with the rules of God, with the Word of God, what people did with the Word of God in the days of Jesus, what the religious leaders did in, in His day and time, is, they, is people in positions of power use those rules to cause pain and oppression and even shame on others. But Peter, we're, we're talking about First Peter during this series. If you have your Bibles or your Bible app, if you want to go on to the Bible app, you can open up to, uh, to that and join with us today. Peter wrote this letter to, to the church, to one of the early emerging churches, and he wanted to tell them, convey to them, listen, I did life with Jesus for three years, and he did. He was one of Jesus' closest disciples. He was in the inner circle of Jesus. He had heard Jesus teach the masses. And then he got a backstage pass to come over with Jesus and the boys and be like, okay, Jesus, we heard you, but what did that mean? Like, break it down for us. And he did. They got to walk with Jesus and journey with Jesus and see what Jesus did and hear what Jesus said. Over the course of three years, Peter saw all of that. And Peter got to see what was most important to Jesus. Like, which of the rules are going to matter? What, which ones are going to stick? What, what is life like? With Jesus, and what is life like with the Son of God? And you know what's interesting? It, it, it is, you, know what, you know what Peter witnessed? More often than not, and you rule breakers are going to love this, Peter watched Jesus break the rules over and over again. There were certain things you shouldn't do on the Sabbath, and Jesus seemed to always mess that one up. He would do things for people on the Sabbath all the time. There were certain people that you shouldn't touch, and Jesus, he, he just ignored it. He touched the untouchable over and over again. There were certain people that you shouldn't welcome into your presence, or you shouldn't, you know, spend time with. And over and over again, Jesus welcomed them into his presence. He went into their houses, the houses of well-known tax collectors and sinners, and ate with them. Over and over again, it seemed like Jesus was just breaking the rules over and over And Peter watched this. And now Peter is writing a letter to the emerging church, and he wants to convey to them, hey, I I was a part. I was a part of the ministry and the life of Jesus. And I want to come over here, and I want to show you, I want to share with you what was most important to Jesus. This is what life looks like in a faith community. This is what life, according to Jesus, looks like in, in his house. These are the new house rules, according to Jesus, through the heart of Peter. And I just want to share these with you and walk through these with you today. In 1 Peter, we'll start in three, chapter 3 and verse 8. Peter says this, Finally, all of you should be of one mind. And we, we have to take a time out there, right? All of you should be of one mind. What Peter didn't say is that we all have to agree on everything. And that's what's happened for a lot of churches and a lot of people, right? Some of our earliest church plants were really church splits because we couldn't all agree on everything. Peter says here, finally, I want all of you, I want you to have the same mind. What he's saying is I want you to be united in spirit. 
I want you to have this sense of unity, the sense of the, the same disposition to have, to be united in the Spirit, to be of the same mind. And that doesn't mean you have to agree on everything. Unity is not the same thing as uniformity. What Peter's calling us to is to be a people who are united around the identity of Jesus Christ as Lord. And that is what holds us together. Because you know this, if we had to all agree on everything as a prerequisite to worship together, we would never be able to come together to worship together. We're all different, and that's what makes us beautiful. We're all different. We have different preferences and opinions and thoughts and ideas. But what holds us together, what is strong enough to hold us together, is Jesus. Song selection is not strong enough to hold us together. <laughs> you know, some of you like the hymns. Some of you like the song you heard on the radio last week. And if, if that had to hold us together, we, we wouldn't have stand a chance. What holds us together is the worship of Jesus. What holds us together is not how we do discipleship. Some of you love going to a Bible class, you know, getting into a room with other people and opening the Word of God and just walking through it verse by verse, and it helps you grow in your faith, helps you grow and mature in Christ. Some of you, you would rather do that in a group. And some of you, you like multi-generational groups. You like to be with older people and younger people. Some of you, you want to be with people of the same age. Some of you, you enjoy men's groups. Some of you, you enjoy being in a, in, a, in a ladies' group. And all that is good. And we try to provide all of those opportunities. And Jason Graves, our minister who was up here a while ago, does a great job. Of, of making those opportunities available to all of you because all of those are different ways that you can, you can encounter discipleship and you can grow in your faith. But we, if we had to agree that everybody had to do the same thing, we wouldn't stand a chance. What holds us together is not how we do discipleship. What holds us together as a church, as a faith family, as a house, is Jesus. Because Jesus is Lord. He is, he is the head of this house. So when Peter says, be of one mind, he's saying, let the identity of Jesus as Lord and Savior, be the thing that unites you and holds you together as a house. And when that happens, guess what? You're going to have to, get this, sympathize with each other. Because you're not always going to get your way. Because Jesus is Lord, and because he is Lord, guess what? I'm not. So I'm not always going to get my way. Because Jesus is Lord, you are not. So you're not always going to get your way. Peter says you got to be united around the identity of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And what that means is that you have to sympathize with, you, with each other, help each other, give each other the benefit of the doubt, get along with each other even when you don't get your way, sympathize with each other, and love each other. And I don't know why he says this. Love each other as brothers and sisters. And some of you who have brothers and sisters, I know that you love nothing more than to fight <laughs> with your brothers and sisters. So I don't know why he said this, except for the, the single reason that I think most of us know. That even though sometimes we may have disagreements in our families, there's nothing we wouldn't do for family. And what a great illustration that is for this house, for the church. That you and I, we may not always see eye to eye on everything. But I love you like a brother. You love me like a brother. I love you like a sister. And because of that, because of that love, because I love you, we love each other like brothers and sisters. We can sympathize each with, other, with, with each other. We can be united as a house. And he says, be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. And honestly, this is what separates us from every other house. This is what separates us from every other enterprise. Because to choose to be a people who are tender-hearted, to choose to be a house that is humble. Humility is not a natural instinct or a natural choice. 
Humility means that I willingly step down and serve up. Humility means that I choose to lower myself and to elevate another. And Peter said, this should this, this is the rule in, in this house. This is the rule in the, in the house of Jesus that we choose to be a people who are tenderhearted. Tenderhearted, not hard-hearted, not judgmental, not angry, not bitter, not holding on to that grudge. Tenderhearted and humble, always humble, that we let love be our highest value. You know what he's saying? Peter, who did life with Jesus for three years, he's saying, be like Jesus. Over and over again, be like Jesus. Who was, who was more tenderhearted than Jesus Christ? Who was more loving than Jesus Christ? Who sympathized with us more than Jesus Christ? Who humbled himself more than Jesus? Who humbled himself even to death, even death on a cross? When you and I know, we both know he could have called at any moment those 10,000 angels. He could have chosen another way. But he said, not my will, but yours. Who humbled himself more than you? And Peter says, yeah. Jesus, live like he lived. And he says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That's, that's what God, that's what Jesus did, and that's what God calls you to do. And when you do that, he will grant you a blessing. This is exactly what Jesus did. When he was beaten, when he was mocked, when he was spit on, when he was laughed at, when he was made to carry his own cross, when they pressed a crown of thorns into his head, when they nailed his hands into a cross, he didn't retaliate once. Oh my goodness. At what point would you have cracked? It wouldn't have taken me very long. Jesus didn't. He didn't retaliate. He didn't repay evil for evil. He didn't insult the people who were spitting in his face. Jesus is call, calling us. Peter is calling us to an entirely different way of life. And just so you don't con get confused, he's not, he's not angling here for behavior modification. What Peter's not doing is say, hey, you, you've got to try harder. You've got to do better. You got, you, we, we, you, you got to stop messing up. Peter's not saying, and Jesus wouldn't say this either, that, that you got to get your act together and you got to get it all figured out. He's not interested in behavior modification. What Peter is after is life change. That when you have lived with Jesus, when you have encountered Christ, when you have walked with Jesus, when you have seen him on the cross, when you've experienced his love and his grace and his mercy in your life, in light of what Christ has done for you, something has to change about you. Because when you encounter Jesus, you can't walk away and be the same again. You see, these house rules, the, you know what the truth is? They're not really rules at all. This is just what life looks like when your life is ruled by the love of Jesus. These rules, they're not really rules at all. It's what happens in our house when we elevate Jesus to the highest place and we keep him there. And we lower ourselves. 
And we lower our judgments and our preferences and our opinions and everything else. And we lay it all at the foot of the cross. And we keep lifting up Jesus and we keep lifting up each other over and over again. In that kind of house where Jesus is elevated and we're trying to outserve one another. This is what it looks like. This is, this is the house that God is building. It's this house. It's a beautiful house. But it means you have to ask this question. And I want to pause here because really the whole deal hangs on this one question. And this is it. Do you want Jesus to be the Lord and Savior of your life? Now you may say, I think I've already answered that question. I've already checked that box. I've already walked through the water. Been there, done that. Yes, the answer is yes. But if you've asked an answer to that question, I want to ask you to ask and answer it again and again and again. Because I don't think this is a question we ask and answer once. This is a question we ask and answer, at least in my life, in my experience, almost every single day. And sometimes moment by moment. My hunch is that everyone in the room, at least here today, you probably want Jesus to be your Savior because nobody wants to go to hell. Everybody wants to go to heaven, and so we want Jesus to be our Savior. We believe in the amazing grace of God, and we sing these songs, and we celebrate his love, and we are so thankful for his grace, and that's what we, what we want so desperately is for Jesus to forgive us and save us, absolutely. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's a good starting point. But the bigger question is, do you want Jesus to be your Lord? And this is where we struggle because I think we say yes, and then we take control right back. But making Jesus Lord means we give him the car keys. Making Jesus Lord means we we make him the decision maker for the big things in life and even like the little things. Like if Jesus is your Lord, everything filters through that and he gets to decide it's not your decision anymore, it's his. And everything that comes up in your life, you're always asking him, what do I do? What do I do? You're Lord. You're in charge. You're driving the ship. This is, you're setting the course. You're setting the direction. And sometimes it's hard for us to know which way to go. It takes a spirit living inside of us. It takes the community of faith around us to sometimes give us and help us in that spiritual discernment. And we need all of that. But all of that is still striving in the same vein of saying, Jesus, you are Lord. And I need you to show me which way to go. I need you to tell me what to do. Sometimes it's black and white and it's easy. It's plain to see. Sometimes it's a little more elusive. But when we're striving, when we're asking the question, then we're right on track. Because if Jesus is Lord, it changes everything about us. That's what happened in one community in Pennsylvania in 2006. When you think about the Amish people, my guess is, what you think about is what they're against. If I were to ask you just in casual conversation, you know, what, what, do you, what do you know about Amish people? You would probably tell me something like this. Well, uh, they don't drive cars. Um, they don't promote higher education. They don't have any TVs or screens. I know all the things that, that they don't do. And that's how most people identify and know the Amish community. But in 2006, all that changed. And you may remember the story. Because in 2006, in a community in Pennsylvania... A gunman walked in to a one schoolroom house. And he dismissed all the boys. And then he proceeded to shoot the little girls that were in that schoolhouse. And five of those little girls died that day. Now, when that news story broke, the whole world watched. 
everybody was angry, and rightfully so. Everybody was mad. How could anyone do that? Take the lives of five innocent children. But what happened next, nobody saw coming. If you know the story, you know what happened. After five of their daughters were murdered, some of the men from the Amish community went over to the home of the wife of the man who shot their girls. After killing those girls and shooting some others, he took his own life. They knocked on the door and she let them come inside. News cameras were stationed outside and they, they couldn't believe this was happening. And she didn't know what to expect. But they came in and they said, we want you to know that we forgive your husband for what he did today. And we also want you to know that we are sorry for your loss. Because today, you lost a husband and your three children lost a father. And you can imagine the wave of emotion that rushed over her as these gentlemen stood in her living room and shared the love and the forgiveness of Christ with her in light of literally what had just happened. Before they had time for a funeral, they came to her house to tell her that they forgave her husband and that she was their neighbor and that if she needed anything, she could call on them. At first, those TV people in the press, they, they couldn't believe it. They, they thought, this, this can't be real. The world watching couldn't believe it. This is not how you respond in the face of such tragedy, of such violence, of such evil. Hate should beget hate. We should be outraged. This lady and her kids should have to move. It should, we should... We should Separate all this out. And they asked, how, how could they do this? How could they forgive? How could they, is it even real? And it was. See, they had chosen. They had chosen not to let hate fill their hearts. They had chosen a different way. The way of love and the way of forgiveness. And you may say, how is that even humanly possible? And you know what the answer is? It's not. It's not. It's only possible through Jesus. It's only possible when you have experienced the unconditional love and forgiveness of Christ that you can then give that unconditional love and forgiveness to others. That's the only way this happens. And to say it's easy would, would be a disservice. It is not easy. The way of the cross, the way of Jesus is rarely easy. But it is always right. Because it was Jesus said. It was Jesus who said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It was Jesus who said, forgive those who have sinned against you and I will forgive you of your sins. And if Jesus is your Lord, then what happens? What happens when you're hurt? What happens when someone offends you? What happens when someone lets you down? 
what happens when someone does the unthinkable. If Jesus is Lord, we love, we respond in grace, we, for, we forgive. Because if we believe Jesus is who he says he is, everything changes. And what changes is us. Because a changed life, that's the evidence of a life ruled by the love of Christ. And this is the life that we're being called to. We're called in this house to let the love of Christ be our highest value. We're called to experience life change every day and to become more and more like Jesus Christ. And when that happens, what happens for us over and over again is when the world comes against us, when evil is all around us, we keep responding in love and grace. And it doesn't make sense, but neither does the cross. The love of God is incomprehensible. And if we can share it with the world, it will overwhelm them too, and they will never forget. Because what they expect Hurt people always hurt people, but when hurt people love people, something changes, and we're called to be a kind of house where love rules the day. Church, if you would, let's, let's stand. Peter said it. If you read in a few more verses in 3.15, 1 Peter 3.15, he says, Let Jesus be the Lord of your life. Worship Jesus as the Lord of your life. I think Peter was there that day. You may remember this story when a religious leader came and asked Jesus a question, trying to trap him, and he said, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had figured out 633 different commands. So Jesus, you tell us which two are most important, which, which is most important. And Jesus said, it's not a hard question. There's two. One, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. Peter was there that day. I, I know he was. He heard Jesus say it. And then he saw Jesus live it. And so when Peter's trying to tell the church how they're supposed to live, he said it this way. Finally, all of you should love. All of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. You must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And the calling today, church, is for us to live into that calling. That we may be a house that is ruled by the love of Christ. And today, if you need to make that confession again, Jesus, you are Lord. I want you to be Lord. Will you be my Lord, Jesus? I need you. I'm going to invite our shepherds and their wives to make themselves available around the room. And you, you are welcome to go and pray with them. They are not perfect, but they would love to usher you into the presence of a perfect Savior. And they would love to pray with you. And if you've never made Jesus the Lord, we're going to say it again. This year we've seen 14 people baptized into Jesus Christ and make that confession that Jesus, you are Lord and Savior of my life. And if you want to do that today, we would love to, to, to help you with that. And you can come find me. I'll be over here. You can find one of these men and their wives. They would love to, to pray with you over that. And we'll, the water is not here, but we will find water. That is not hard. We have got a pool. It will work out. Because this is the rule in this house, that we want to be a house ruled. By Jesus. Amen. Because we are his sons and daughters. And we are the family of God. And all are welcome here in this place, in this house.
Let's sing.